Please open your scriptures to Psalm 17. Psalm 17 is a prayer for deliverance. More precisely, it is an innocent person's prayer for protection, interestingly enough. Now, some here, more theologically inclined, may have a knee-jerk response that says, there are no innocent people. Uh, and I agree with that in, its, in, a, in, a, in a small portion of truth, but Psalm 17 actually puts forward a contrast. It doesn't allow for a lazy and inaccurate theological answer. The fact is, there are those who are upright and there are those who are wicked. Psalm 1 made this very clear. There are these two paths that we can travel down. The question is, who or what do you turn to when you think of your own need for deliverance? Perhaps you woke up this morning fearing the senseless randomness of violence again. That you have a, a renewed anxiety because of the events that happened south of us. Well, let's look at David's prayer and let's look at a biblical response to this, this violence in the world, this unjustness in the world, the danger that is in the world. There'll be danger today. When you wake up tomorrow, there will be different dangers and you will go through this entire life facing trouble and danger and disappointment. What is a biblical response to that situation? Let's look at Psalm 17. And for our understanding this morning, the psalm actually doesn't divide up. It is a single prayer or a single song. But for our understanding, we're going to consider the psalm in three parts. Number one, a prayer for vindication. Okay. We're using that word because the text uses that word. Secondly, a prayer for protection. And third, a prayer for deliverance, both temporary and eternal. Let's look at the first section, and this will be verses 1 through 5, a prayer for vindication. Look at verse 1 and notice David's earnest cry for help. He's, gonna, he's basically going to say the same thing in three different sustained ways. Look at verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. God does not have trouble hearing a single request. What the text is showing you is David's earnestness and this sustained dependence on God. Hear, attend, give ear. Basically here he's asking Yahweh, the covenant-making God, uh, seen by that all-capital title, O Lord, listen to me, O Lord. Then he uses a term that's not been used yet in the Psalms that is translated, attend to my cry. It indicates a loud shout or a ringing cry like a child that can express either joy or grief. Charles Spurgeon remarked, there is a mighty power in a child's cry to prevail with a parent's heart. And then the third similar request, give ear to my prayer. And again, the question is, who or what do you cry out for when you're in trouble? Do you suppress your pain and try to deal with it alone? Or do you unload on others with sort of this verbal regurgitation without really casting it on God? You're just content sort of 
hitting everybody else with the same problem, the same drama, the same trouble, without ever looking to God and saying, hear me, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer. He follows that with a request for vindication. The idea is a plea for righteousness. Look at verse one. I'm going to highlight another word here. A just cause. Do you see that word? This is a plea for vindication based on God's righteousness. Hear a just cause from your presence, verse 2, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. There are three more terms that give us this idea through the prayer that what David is praying for is a sense of righteousness in this specific situation. This is what David is doing. David is asking God to survey his life, his motives, his actions. Here's what David is not doing. David is not claiming to be perfect. He's saying, look on my just cause. Look on with righteousness. Deal rightly. Survey my life. David is not claiming to be perfect or without sin. And we know that because the details of his life are recorded in the best-selling book in the entire world. And we know he's not without sin. This is not a prayer for sinless people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is a prayer for protection and deliverance when you find yourself in a situation where you are innocent. You're not without sin, but in this particular situation, you are being misrepresented and misunderstood. Here is a man, David, who is being falsely accused. He has spoken the truth, verse 3, and he has not not taken bribes, verse 4. Now look at verse 3. And we're we're still in this first section. Notice his confession of a clear conscience. This is what he says before God. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. This is an amazing conclusion. And you will find nothing. Again, not sinlessness. But the particular charges against this man in this context, David is saying, I'm innocent. You're going to find nothing. There are two overlapping metaphors, one uh, that refers to the refining of metals by purging and the other one that refers to an investigation like criminal activity. The first asks, is there any impurity? The second asks, is there any crime or wrongdoing? Look at that again. You have tried my heart. That's the refiner aspect. You have visited me, you've examined, you've investigated the crime scene. You have tested me. He goes back, same Hebrew word for tried. You have tested me, the the, the aspect of refining. With the phrase, you have tried my heart, David is capturing the New Testament idea of conscience. Conscience is a very interesting thing. The Greek word for conscience, New Testament, uh, is used 30 times and in, is in, in, in interpreted or translated of what you believe to be right and wrong. So conscience can be different. There's different sensitivities for a conscience depending on how it has been trained or directed or how much it is being guided by God's word and not human manipulation or intimidation. Positively, the conscience can be good in the sense of blameless, clear, clean, and pure. 
In this sense, David's conscience is clear. You have tried me and you have found nothing. You've refined me. You've investigated me. And the result is nothing. Negatively, however, the conscience can be weak, wounded, defiled, emboldened to sin, evil or guilty, and seared. The New Testament uses the picture as of a hot iron coming down and searing the conscience so that it has no feeling anymore. It's been so burned by exposure to the world and ungodliness, it is seared. The good news is this, that an evil or guilty conscience can be, let me use a couple terms out of Hebrews, cleansed, cleared, purified, washed, and sprinkled clean. So if last night God visited you, He refined you, He investigated you, and He found something, here's the good news. That can be cleansed and cleared, acquitted, washed. The trying and testing of the heart indicate that God is actively at work. Uh, The terms for tried and tested are in the Old Testament, same word, uh, translated goldsmith. In Isaiah, that term is used in three different places. In Nehemiah, in three different places. Tried and tested. Here is the goldsmith actually attending to this this metal and trying to bring forth the most perfect product. The Hebrew word in Malachi is also rendered refiner. God is the divine refiner and investigator of every person. Verse 3, you have visited me by night. Interesting statement. What is it about the night that makes investigation so clear? Well, the stillness, maybe the intimate scrutiny of the nighttime. Nothing else is pulling at the attention, especially in the life of David. If he is, if the situation is that he's running from Saul, he's out in the wilderness. When the sun goes down, he can't see where his enemy is. He's very alert at night. In the stillness of this situation, God is investigating David's heart in the stillness and alertness of the nighttime. Undistracted inspection. Notice what David says when he's refined and when he's investigated. Look at verse 3. His words are true and sincere. Right? I purpose that my mouth will not transgress. Look at verse 4. He has not been violent. He says, I have avoided the ways of the violent. If he is on the run from Saul in the wilderness, David several times could have taken Saul's life. And he didn't. I've avoided the ways of the violent. Look at verse 5. He's obeyed God's word. He says, my steps have held fast to your paths My feet have not slipped. David, in this sense, he's remained on God's tracks. He has not gotten off the trail. Perhaps an allusion back to Psalm 1 where there are these two ways. And Psalm 1 purposely stands at at the front of 149 other psalms. And basically, it's this simple. There are two ways you can live. There is a right way that involves God's words. And there is a wrong way. But God knows the way that you take. David is saying, I haven't gotten off track. Not yet. He will. I've not left the trail of your word. How is a clear conscience possible? How is it to say, God, you've investigated me, you have refined me, and there is nothing? Obey God. 
Jesus says, you are my friends if you what? If you do whatsoever, I command you. What do you do when you have a defiled conscience? I love what John says in 1 John 1.9. Probably initially to unbelievers, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Then he seems to write to believers in chapter two, verse one, he says, my little children. This is an affectionate term to those who are following Jesus. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And many of us will find hope and encouragement in what he says next. But if anyone does sin. Believers, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It is Jesus who cleanses, Jesus who purifies, Jesus who sprinkles that conscience so that tonight you could, before God, say, refine me and investigate me and you will find nothing. Look at his prayer for protection. This is the second section. Look at verse 6. There again, we have a series of requests that seem to indicate different pleas or petitions, but they all seem to be connected to a central request in this section. And that is found in verse seven, where he says this, show me your steadfast love. Show me your faithful, undying love. The psalmist asked for three things, that God hear him, that God reveal himself in deliverance and that God protect him. This is an interesting portion because what what it seems David has done in recalling to him what would have been scriptures that were written and previously recorded, he is recalling this song after the Israelites, well, after God's people were delivered out of slavery, exodus, out of deliverance. And he's taking this huge illustration of deliverance, this historical event, and he's sort of claiming his own or tagging to it his own personal cry for deliverance. Let me read to you the portion in Exodus 15. Who is like you, Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. What is he talking about? When the sea was parted and the, and the enemy was in murderous pursuit and they had no hope and they cried out to God, and God stretched out his right hand and the earth swallowed them. Exodus continues. It says this. You have led in your steadfast love. That act, that catastrophic act against the Egyptian enemy is linked to God's steadfast love. And the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode from that memory. The psalmist now seeks a type of personal exodus. Notice the intensity. Look at verse 6. I call upon you, for you will answer me. O God, incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. See, this earnestness is sustained almost throughout this entire prayer. Wondrously, verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. 
I think we understand this, this plea, this cry out. Of course, steadfast love isn't just let me have this sort of sweet, syrupy experience of the fact that you love me, God. Steadfast love connected back to Exodus is clear, decisive, violent deliverance from the enemy. The verse includes two beautiful metaphors, this section, the apple of God's eye. What most people believe that refers to is the eyes just instant, like the blinking of an eye to guard its pupil. If you think somebody has thrown something at you, yes, you, you turn immediately and turn, but your eye has already started to protect what is most delicate. David is saying, God, you're the apple of my eye. When he says that, it's not just, oh, that's beautiful. Uh, picture of apples in a cornucopia with other fruit. How calming, how sentimental. No, he's saying, God, you're my protection. Even when I don't know something is about to attack me, you are already protecting. Shadow of your wings. There's the second metaphor taken from the animal world. Wings surround, protect and give flight. Wings give escape. But notice that it says the shadow of your wings. In order to be in the shadow of something, you have to be near it. So you have these beautiful metaphors that are, that are indicating closeness and protection. Why these requests for protection? Why is David crying out for these specific things? Look at verse 9. Protect me what? From who? The wicked who do me violence. We realize, and we were reminded again yesterday, that there are people in the world who grow cold and calloused. Their consciences are seared. These people are not just theoretically evil, they are really and practically evil, assertively looking to harm people. They are, as David describes of his own enemies, verse 9, deadly enemies. And they surround and just because you know God does not mean enemies will not surround. He calls them in verse 10, violent people. Verse 10, they close their hearts to pity with their mouths. They speak arrogantly. Verse 11, their motives are evil. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. And if you don't get any of those warnings, look at the imagery he uses in verse 12. His enemies are like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. David says, these are my enemies. God, listen to me. Hear me. Attend to my cry. Show me your steadfast love as the apple of your eye under the shadow of your wings. Protect me from a very real and specific enemy. This is a prayer for deliverance. And that brings us to David's final part in this prayer. Look at verse 13. And this is a prayer. This is his final prayer for deliverance. Verse 13. Arise. I mean, this is a call to move into action. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Again, there's nothing in the psalm that helps us to understand the exact historical con context. There are many that could fit. I want to read one found back in 1 Samuel 23, a fitting example. 
where Scripture records, and when Saul heard that, that David was in a particular place, he received intelligence, he pursued after David in the wilderness. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Okay, so picture that. David is running away, trying to stay on the other side, trying to keep this mountain in between them. David, David is not an inexperienced warrior, but Saul has royal resources and they're closing in about ready to capture him. This prayer would be very fitting. Saul is pursuing me for nothing that I have done wrong. God, hear me. God, time is running out. Subdue him. Confront him specifically. Listen to what the narrative says. As they were about to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And what is a king to do? He's supposed to leave off his petty, little, self-centered, narcissistic mission and go back and do what a king should do and protect the kingdom. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. Probably a specific answer to David's prayer. God, I can't do this anymore. God, we live in an evil world. The charges that are being brought against me are not true. Subdue him, confront him. And God does. David acknowledges God's ability and sovereignty. Look at verse 13. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. It's incredible. If you ever want to do a study on God, on God as a warrior, there's plenty of Old Testament texts where it talks about God strapping on his sword, God going forward to battle. This is what David is appealing to, this part of God's character. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand. God could even use the Philistines coming down for an invasion. O Lord, from men of the world, I want you to see this. Look at verse 14, because this is where we live. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. We live with people who make every single decision based on and oriented on this life alone, not on God, not on an eternity with Jesus Christ, but on this world alone. David says, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. Peter Craigie stated, the enemies have grown fat and prosperous on the basis of divine provision, but have forgotten the divine provider. That's what David is appealing to. And this leads us to David's final statement where these people are fat and they forget who's provided for them and all they do this is their entire life i'm going to increase riches and hand it off to my children period look at what david says final verse verse 15 this is a prayer of confidence as for me contrasted with those kinds of people i shall behold your face in righteousness when i awake i shall be satisfied with your likeness Here's what verse 15 does. Verse 15 takes us beyond our hope, beyond our own right desires that people get what they deserve. Verse 15 takes us beyond what is even a godly impulse to say people shouldn't be getting away with evil. 
And it takes us above that. It reminds us that we all face a cruel, heartless enemy, worse than Saul, worse than the Pharaoh in the Egyptian army, worse than the bully at the playground, worse than a predator, worse than a murderer. And that enemy is death. There's so much more to life than this earthly span of moments. There is something after death. Those who believe God, who trust in his promises, can say with David, verse 15, look at it again. As for me, and I do believe he means both temporary and eternal here. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, maybe the next morning, or maybe from death, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is how he concluded in Psalm 16. Jason already pointed our attention to that this morning. He concludes that prayer and prays with this. You make known to me the path of life in your prison presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore, forever, for eternity. So David, even though appealing for temporal relief and protection and deliverance, he is looking beyond this life. Listen to what John says in 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's a reality. If you have placed faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you're not trusting in the works of the law to be justified, you are God's child right now. Based on everything that Jesus Christ did. But he says this, and what we will be has not yet appeared. And I'm thankful for that. Coming through another seven days in this life. And I'm not even talking about external enemies. I'm talking about the enemies with inside my own heart. We often try to blame the devil for those. No, just the fallenness of our own flesh. That lives in unbelief to God. That wants to build up idols that we, that we believe will satisfy. But like Psalm 16 said, those who chase after other idols, their sorrows will be multiplied. And even when our sorrows are multiplied, we keep chasing after other things that are not God, that do not satisfy. What we will be has not yet appeared. We see glimpses of Jesus in each other. Moments of incredible Christ-likeness and sacrificial love. But there's also those moments of just downright moodiness and bitterness and competitiveness and jealousy. And a bitterness that is a root that defiles many people. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. See, I don't want to be like this forever. And I'm born again. And I have hope of eternal life. But you know, today I'm still going to have to deal with the disappointments of this life. Tomorrow I'm going to have to fight off temptations. This month, I'm going to have to go through trials I probably never expected. I don't want to live this life forever. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. See, that's our motive for living purely now. Because we're looking forward to that day. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. So today I'm going to do the next right thing. 
because I love Jesus Christ. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Here's the amazing truth. Philippians 3 verses 8 to 9 says this, that in Christ, God sees us as perfect. As he investigates, as he refines us in Christ, we are perfect. No, there's a practical aspect where we're trying to live in alignment with who we are. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. How is that possible? And as we transition to the Lord's Supper, I want to read this verse out of Hebrews. This is the only way it is possible. Again, not a righteousness that I get by keeping the law. Not a righteousness that says I'm better than everyone else. I'm performing, I'm performing much better than the average believer. The writer to the Hebrews says this in Hebrews 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, a reference back to the Old Testament tabernacle, but this tent, in parentheses, the writer of Hebrews says, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, the fulfillment of what the tabernacle pointed to, the realization of what the shadow of that tent casted, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's how we are forgiven of our sin. That's how we are washed whiter than snow. That is when God steps in in the larger picture of things and He investigates you and He refines you and He finds you in Christ. Then He receives you and accepts you as His child. 